0: You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. Uh, We are in the book of Acts, as uh, many of you have been journeying with us, and we have yet another incredible story to tackle today. Uh, Last week, Ben taught on a guy who got in a fight and lost his pants, and today I get a chance to talk about a guy who fell out a window three stories up after falling asleep. The only thing would make it worse for our poor man, Eutychus, if he fell out the window with no pants on, uh, like the guy last week, (laughs) then it would really be bad. Uh, but today, we are journeying through the book of Acts, and for those of you who don't know me, my name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church, and as we think about getting to this place of Acts 20, the book of Acts really tells us what authentic Christianity looks like. It's getting at the earliest of Christianity, the history of the church from its beginning. And if we ever want to know what something authentic looks like, we want to go back to the original source. we we'll want to go back to the beginning of how it formed, how it shaped who we are today as the church. And as we look at the book of Acts, we are getting a real taste of what authentic Christianity looks like. And we find ourselves here in Acts chapter 20, and just to kind of recap where we were last week and the following weeks, Paul is on, or is coming off of what we Typically call his second missionary journey. Paul, this great evangelist, this great mission missionary, he goes out throughout most of the Roman world and he begins to start churches. He goes into cities where there were no Christian presence. He brings the gospel message. People repent and believe and are baptized and a church is formed. And we see this happen throughout modern day Turkey and Greece, and we find now that Paul is journeying back and his destination is Jerusalem. He wants to go with haste to get to Jerusalem. And he just came off of this three-year stint ministry to the church at Ephesus, which uh, Ben spoke about last week. And as he's leaving that, he's making his way back. And today we're going to see two brief stops. The first is at Troas, and the second is at Miletus, which is where he meets with the leaders, the pastors of this church at Ephesus. Now, while he's in Troas, as we just heard read by Martha Ellen, we see this unusual and quite bizarre event. The community of Christians are meeting together as Paul is going to depart the next day. He has them in this upper room, the church is gathered, they're breaking bread, they're worshiping together, they're listening to Paul's teaching, the the lamps are burning as the night grows dark, and then we meet this young man named Eutychus. Poor Eutychus decides that he wants to take the seat uh, on the windowsill, which is probably not the wisest choice from the beginning. But he's sitting there on the windowsill, and as the night continues to grow dark, he continues to grow into a slumber. And eventually, he falls into a deep sleep during Paul's teaching, which I think is a great deal of encouragement to any pastor who has ever lived. Uh, because if someone can fall asleep during Paul's sermons, he mo- most certainly, many of you will probably fall asleep during one of Ben's sermons. So, um, I'm just kidding. Just kidding, guys. I'm kidding. All right. Uh, but, but this. Uh, uh, this, this story, <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry, I just, I couldn't resist. This story is not primarily about how to stay awake in a worship service, though. It's not primarily whether or not pastors should be so compelling as to not bore people literally to death. There's irony in this story, there's humor in this story, even though it's very tragic, and I think the reason is, is because we can relate. We can relate to what that slow drift feels like when we begin to fall into a slumber, Maybe it's at a night uh, when you're driving back from somewhere late at night and you begin to see that things start to, your vision starts to go a little blurry and you begin to fall into a little bit of a slumber. Or maybe it's like me when my wife wants to watch a movie with me late at night and she turns it on, I just go ahead and give her the forewarning that I'm going to fall asleep sometime during it. I can never make it through a late night movie because as the movie progresses, I just fall into that deep slumber, that deep sleep. Now I think Luke includes this story here because it actually happened. Eutychus actually fell asleep, and he fell from three floors down and was pronounced dead, and by the power of the Holy Spirit working through Paul, he was resurrected to life. It's a real historical event that happened, but oftentimes in the Bible, sleep is used metaphorically as well. It's used in such a way to describe what spiritual drift feels like, what slumber feels like, You can look in the Gospels and you see Jesus does this. Uh, he, He teaches a parable in Matthew 25 of these 10 bridesmaids who are awaiting the bridegroom. And he says that in the parable, five of them were wise. They were wise because they stored for themselves extra oil for their lamps, knowing that the bridegroom's arrival was delayed. And so even though the bridegroom's arrival was delayed after midnight, these wise bridesmaids, they stayed alert. They stayed awake for the arrival of the bridegroom. But then there were five unwise, foolish bridesmaids who didn't think about the oil, ran out of oil, fell asleep, and were unprepared for the bridegroom's arrival. They missed the wedding banquet. And Jesus' instructions to his disciples after he tells them the story is to stay alert. Keep awake. Don't fall into a slumber. Don't fall into that drift that happens. And I think in some ways, this story of Eutychus, as it kind of propels us into the end of Acts 20, will help us see that there, there is a, a meaning here for us today. A truth that is clear in the New Testament for us today. That the Christians, the earliest Christians, were not immune to this spiritual drift. They were not immune to slumber. They were not immune to falling asleep. You might think of it as spiritual sleepiness. And I think Paul, at the end of this chapter, as we think about how can we bring this together, as we look at Acts 20, he's traveling, he's in Troas, this dude falls from the, the third floor, and he continues to preach and teach, and then he just goes right on his business to another place, and he begins to, to expound upon this very compassionate and tearful and, and very emotional message to these leaders of the Ephesus church. How do we make sense of all this? Well, I think the story of Eutychus really gives us the image we need to know today that we need to see both the warning and the promise here of this text. The warning that it's not uncommon for any of us to fall into spiritual drift, to fall into sleepiness, to laziness, to laxity when it comes to our spiritual life. But the beauty of this text, it reminds us that what keeps us awake is when we're in community. If you notice in this text, the church is so prominent. The church is gathered together to listen to Paul even late throughout the evening, and then as he goes to Ephesus, Paul begins to expound this address to these Christian leaders. And what he's trying to showcase is what the church should look like, who the church should be, the value of being in community with one another. And so if you take away a main idea of this entire uh, chapter of Acts 20, I think it's, it's this, that gospel community awakens faith. You want to stay awake, you want to stay away from spiritual slumber, stay in community. You want to avoid spiritual drift like our brother Eunicus, stay close to the community of faith. You see, in the entire book of Acts, there is only one speech or one address that is giving specifically to Christians, and that's this one at the end of Acts 20. Uh, the book of Acts is, is kind of formed around these great speeches, these great messages from our, our great leaders of the early church. We think about Peter giving these profound uh, you know, sermons at the beginning of the book of Acts. We think about Stephen and what he said as he's being martyred. And we think about Paul and the addresses that he gives throughout his ministry. But this is the only time that we see that he gives a, a, a substantial address specifically to Christians. And I think the reason why is he's trying to explain to the Ephesian elders, these pastors, what gospel community looks like. What the church should look like. Why it's important that we have community with one another. And so if you're following along the outline, which will be up on the screen here, as we look at the end of Acts 20 and kind of expound upon this address, as Paul finds himself in my latest with these leaders, there's going to be four marks of what a gospel community looks like. And I think all four of these marks are important as we think about how can we avoid the slumber, the sleepiness, the the drift in our spiritual life. Number one, a gospel community is a community of truth. We'll see that verse 20 and then 26 through 30. We see that it's also a community of transparency, a community of purpose, and then finally, we'll see a community of generosity. Let's go ahead and jump into the text with the community of truth. We'll we'll read a little context here in verse 18. It says, and when they came to him, he said to them, so here we have these Ephesian elders who have come to Paul. Paul didn't want to journey back through Asia because he probably feared that he would get stopped a lot. And so he says, hey, you guys come to me as I'm making my way hastily to Jerusalem. I want to meet with you one more time to expound upon and, and to encourage you with this message I have for you. And he says, You yourselves know that how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. And then look at verse 20. He says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, Paul gets right to the point. He says, it is my goal and my aspiration to declare, to proclaim, to teach the truth. And in essence, that's really what the church is about. The church is here to teach, to proclaim a content, a body of content, to convey truth to the world, God's revelation to humanity. And Paul says, this is what I did. I declare to you that my coming to you was that I was here to declare truth, to teach truth, to not not shrink back, to do what is right. And then verse 26, if you go down, he continues. And this is the reason why Paul is so passionate about why truth matters to the church. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or pastors or shepherds, we might say, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And this is why he says this is so vital that we're a community of truth. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, Your own selves will arise, men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You see, Paul recognizes that there is a level of concern of why truth matters to the community of faith. And that is that there is an enemy, both within and without, that will come to distort truth, that will come to change truth, to make truth irrelevant to the lives of the believers, to come in as wolves among sheep to destroy, to attack. And so God in his providence has set up an institution called the church, not just an organism, where there are leaders, these overseers, these shepherds that have the task of protecting the sheep, They have the task given to them by God as Paul's imparting to these men to say, protect, uphold what is right, teach what is right, affirm the truth, be grounded in the truth, know the truth, because there will be people who come to distort it. Now, I think this is really important for us as we think about what a gospel community looks like. Because if we're to know anything about one another, if we're to know anything about God, we have to know truth, right? It's a very simple statement. If you want to know who I am, you have to know the truth about who I am. You can't just make up facts about who I am and say, that's Wesley, right? If you want to know who God is, you can't just make up what you want to believe about God. You have to seek the truth of who God is. And the reason why it's important that Paul says that we declare this is because it's how we know the truth about who we are and how we know the truth about who God is. Now, J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, Paul, in his own estimation, was not a philosophizer. He was not a moralist. He was not the world's wisest man. He was simply Christ-herald. Paul's royal master had given him a message to proclaim, and his whole business, therefore, was to deliver this message with exact and studious faithfulness. He added nothing, he altered nothing, he omitted nothing. See, Paul recognized that if we're to know God, if we're to know truth, we have to seek it. And God in his grace has given us his truth in the Bible. He has revealed truth about who he is and who we are. Paul says we start here with knowing the truth. But notice what he says about how he presents this truth. He says that, again, in verse twenty. I did not shrink I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. He didn't shrink. He, he wasn't afraid. He didn't, he didn't hesitate in bringing truth to bear on their friendships, on their relationships. Now, this is a much-needed motivation for us, because sometimes telling the truth is hard. Sometimes explaining truth is difficult. Why? Because truth will always offend everybody somewhere right? Truth will always offend everybody somewhere. There is no culture, there is no city, there is no town, there is no person that when we bring truth, it won't offend or upset somewhere. Now, you might find that offensive for me saying that, right? Uh, Oftentimes when I'm talking to people in the city, I I hear an argument often that says, I can't believe the Bible because it offends me. And I think that's precisely why it's true, right? Right? Because not one culture can create something that is not offensive to another. It's not made by one culture. It offends every culture. It's not a product of one particular culture. Truth offends one culture and every culture in some way, somehow. Which points to the reality that it must not be from humanity. It must have a different source. It must come from something other than the cultures of this world. It comes from God. And it makes sense if it offends every culture at every uh, at some point somewhere that it comes from outside culture of humanity. And its origin is in God. And he says, Hey, I don't shrink from proclaiming this, which is a message that perhaps we need to hear today. That as a church that is a community of truth, it is our job to lift up the Bible, even when we know it will offend our culture somewhere. Even when we know it will offend. We can't shrink back. We can't hesitate. But notice what he says next. He says we don't just shrink, we don't just uh, have this kind of uh, uh, unashamed approach to how we proclaim truth. We don't just not shrink back from it, but we proclaim it in such a way that it's profitable, that it's helpful. Man, this is really important, right? Uh, Some of you probably are thinking right now, I know a lot of people who are good at the whole not shrinking back thing. Right? They're very happy to say it and take the flack, but they're not very helpful. They're not very profitable. But Paul says we don't just say it unashamedly, we don't just shrink back from the truth, but we compel people with truth in a way that is helpful, that is healthy, that is right, that is profitable to our lives. And down to verse 32, he says it this way, that I commend to you God into the word of his grace, which is able to build you up which is able to bring health to your soul. You see, as a community of truth, we don't just believe truth for the sake of truth. We don't just believe truth so that we can say that we're right and others are wrong. We don't just believe truth so that we can say that we're better than other people. Truth has a means to an end. Truth is food for our hearts, for our souls, for our character. So how do we protect ourselves from disease, from laziness, from slumber in life? Well, Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 3. We allow the word of God to dwell in us richly. He doesn't say just know the truth. He doesn't say memorize the truth. He doesn't say regurgitate the truth. He says, let it dwell in you richly. Let it be profitable. Let it be helpful. Let it be healthy for your very life. So if you lack courage today, let the word of God dwell in you richly. If you lack love today, let the word of God dwell in you richly. If you lack joy today, let the truth of God's word dwell in you richly. Because it's not just a truth that we proclaim unashamedly, it's a truth that is profitable to our lives. It's a truth that is healthy to our lives. But notice how Paul says he brings this truth to bear on the church. He says, I taught it in public and from house to house. In other words, Paul says it's not just hearing it in a public setting like this that truth comes to bear on our souls. It's from house to house. It's in relationships. It's in one-on-one communities. Now, the church gathered is important. It's important to create health in us that we come together and we hear the word of God proclaimed. Sometimes our sermons are better. Sometimes they're not as good. And even if they were tremendous all the time, Paul says it's not enough. It's not enough just to come and hear it in public. But his goal was to proclaim it from house to house. In other words, how the truth gets applied, how it becomes profitable to our souls, is when it happens through life, through conversations, through us living life together, weeping together, being together. It happens through more than just one big meeting a week. Not enough just to come and to hear music and to sing and to listen and take notes, but to be a true community of truth is to be deeply involved in community. To know truth and to experience the life changing power of God's worth is to be involved in one another's lives. And so Paul begins here. He says, The foundation of a gospel ministry is a community of truth, one that proclaims it and one that receives it as profitable and helpful for our very souls. But then he builds on this and he says, It's also about being a community of transparency. Look back at verse 18. He addresses them and he says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. Now, if you notice in this address, he's very emotional, right? He mentions tears several times. He mentions it here in verse 19, and then again in verse 31, he says, therefore be alert, Remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish, to encourage everyone with tears. Paul's very emotional. He's very compassionate. He has a deep love and connection to these people. And what brought this level of connection to these leaders? Well, he says it right at the beginning. You know yourselves how I lived among you. In essence, he says that I came To be with you. You see, Jesus in the Gospels, he he uses a similar uh, phrase when he calls his disciples to be with them, to be with him. And in that calling, what he's asking for is that you're going to be exposed to me, and I'm going to be exposed to you. When I'm with you, you're going to see all points in my life. All points in my life will become visible to you, and you will become visible to me. Now, this is hard for us sometimes to comprehend. Because a lot of our relationships in life are pretty transactional. We have one point of connectivity to people that we live life with. Uh, A few weeks ago, we had our murder mystery party, and I still think it's funny that today some of you can only refer to someone else by their character from that party, right? (laughs) You're like, who's the old guy begging again? I don't remember. I don't know really his name is. Colby Woodsy? No, that's his character name, right? Because in that moment, you met each other in a a simulation, a situation where you had one point of connectivity, and that was the game we were playing. And to this day, you still have that level of connectivity with one another. Think of it this way. You have a coworker that you go out to happy hours with or social hours with, and you talk about work, and, and you never really get past that. Why is that? Because the only connectivity you really have to that person is your vocational life. You don't talk about your family problems with them. You don't talk about the emotional trauma that you're dealing with. You don't talk about the anxiety that you're dealing with at that moment. They don't know really who you are. There's only one point of connectivity. And oftentimes in our world, because of social media, this has become narrower and narrower and narrower because we can control what we perceive others to think of us. We can limit what points of connectivity we want people to have with us. But Paul says the church is to be so utterly connected in all parts that when Paul came to them, he came to live with them, to eat with them, to work with them, to play with them, to be completely with them, to show completely who he was at all points of his life to these leaders. And how could he do this? Well, notice what he says in verse 19, that he came serving the Lord with all humility. Some translations might say with all weakness. That word translated humility or weakness in Greek culture was always a negative term. It was never used virtuously. It was negative because it meant low. It meant defeated. It was not how you described a leader. It was not how you described someone of great worth or value. And how then does an insult like this outside of gospel community become a virtue inside of it? Well, it's because the Christian faith reminds us that we are not built on the extraordinary men and women of great character worthy to be praised. Our faith is built on a great Savior who can save the weakest, the most broken, and the most guilty of them all. You see, Paul, in his coming, came in humility because he didn't want them to leave with an example worthy to be praised in himself. He wanted to leave them with a Savior to trust in. And if we're trying to, in some way, as we think about the community of faith, if we're trying in some way to earn our own salvation, to define it as whatever we're good at, whatever people think of us, that is what our worth is in. If we're trying to live a life in such a way that people think of us in a certain way, then we'll never be able to show people who we really are. We'll never be able to be honest with who we really are. We'll never know who we really are. And when our hearts say that I have to achieve something or people have to think of me in such a way that that makes me appealing to others, and that is my salvation, that is what brings me worth and dignity and joy, then you will always find yourself stuck on a spectrum. A spectrum between pride and despair. And on the days that there's success, and on the days that you feel good about yourself, and on the day people are praising you, you're going to be filled with pride, your ego is going to be inflated, you're going to be thinking good about yourself. But what happens when you fail? What happens when you're rejected? What happens when people think less of you? You lean towards despair. You get to hate yourself, maybe. You begin to feel like a failure, and you lack confidence. But see, Paul says the reason why we can be a transparent community, because Christians, we're off that spectrum completely. Because of God's grace, we are off the spectrum completely. Because the gospel reminds us that we're not saved by pulling ourselves up, but through what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. It's because of the life he lived that we should have lived and the death that he died that we should have died. It is not subject to our performance. It is not subject to what others think of us, whether we're having a good day or a bad day, whether we're succeeding in this life or we're failing, whether we're having a good week or a bad week. It doesn't matter. He loves us as much now as he will a billion years from now. And what that means and why Paul leans with humility here is because to be in a true gospel community means we can take a breath. It means we don't have to be afraid of looking weak. It means that we don't have to be afraid of exposing ourselves to one another. We don't have to be anxious about people noticing whether we're anxious or not. We don't have to be distressed about people noticing whether we failed or not. We don't have to act superior anymore. We can be transparent. We can be real. We can walk in humility. We can show one another who we are and we can connect in all points of our life with one another. You see, one of the remedies for keeping us from drifting in in, in slumber and sleep spiritually is being connected to the body and being open and willing to say, I can be who I am because of the great Savior I have in Jesus. You can be who you are in a body, a gospel community, because we all have the same need, and the remedy for that need is the same exact Savior. So whether you're having a good day or a bad day, God loves you. Whether you feel like a failure or a success right now, God is for you. And the body of Christ can be transparent, knowing just like Paul, we all come with humility before the God. Now then he builds on this again. He says not only does truth matter to the community, not only does transparency that we can be real and honest with one another matter, but what that does is that brings incredible purpose to our lives. Look at verse 22. He says, and now, after coming to you and proclaiming truth to you, after being profitable in the truth that I proclaim to you, after, after bearing my soul to you, he says, and now, verse 22, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul, he's heading to Jerusalem. And what Paul knows is that as he goes to Jerusalem, he will suffer. But yet he values Jesus above his own comfort, above his own life, in such a way that he says, I am willing to go. Why is Paul willing to go? Why does Paul continue even knowing that he's going to face opposition? Because Paul knows his purpose. He knows his calling. He has a desire to finish that which God had called him to do. He has a desire to complete the race that God had called him to. Paul was not trying to live a long life. He was trying to live a full life, and he knew that a full life is one lived for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why it says my singular focus here is to do what God had called me to do, to finish the race, to complete the ministry of testifying to the gospel of the grace of our Lord. It's a good question for us to ask. What do we feel God has called us to? What do we feel like our purpose is? Sometimes when we think about purpose, it can be pretty overwhelming. Because some of us in this room, uh, maybe we're attracted to this idea of having value and purpose in life to the point where we want to take the the weight of the world on our shoulders. And we feel like to have purpose means that we need to fix every single one of our friends. To have purpose means that we need to care and, and save and rescue every down and out, everyone who is poor, every orphan. And we feel the weight of the world pressing down on our shoulders. And we think, when is it ever enough? When am I ever doing enough to truly find calling and purpose? When am I doing enough to find success in this life? But some of us might have the opposite effect when we think about purpose, and that is we don't really think about it at all. We think, well, does God even have a purpose for my life? Am I even worth it to him? Is there even value for me to have a calling, to have responsibility from God on this earth? And Paul reminds us here that every single one of us has purpose and a calling in this life. And as a community, our calling and our purpose is faithfulness to God. You see, success outside of the church is defined by what we can gain, by by what we can accomplish. But success within the walls of a community, a gospel community, is when we can identify what God has called us to and to walk faithfully, in it, Because success is not based off of what we accomplish at the end of the day. Success is based off of our faithfulness to God. Reminding ourselves that we have a race to run in a ministry just like Paul to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And when you run a race, it's best to run with people around you, right? And when you run a race, you want people with you. You want people pushing you. You want people encouraging you. You want people pressing in with you. And we're not meant to run this race alone. Paul himself even describes here that he is not running this race alone. He is not trying to fill this ministry on his own. What keeps him from not stopping, what keeps him from not slumbering, what keeps him from not falling asleep or leaving the course or going backwards is not his own strength, but it's the power of God working within him. He says here again that he is constrained by the Spirit. He's compelled by the Spirit to run this race. And it's important for us to know that no matter what obstacles we might be facing in life right now, no matter how difficult our life may be, God supplies the power and the strength for us to fulfill his purposes. Not us. We are running on supernatural supply. Not our own. And Paul says what leads him, what constrains him, is not his own strength, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit working in him even when he knows that that there's uncertainty, right? Look what he says, the spirit constrains him not knowing what will happen to me there. What level of contentment that purpose brings in our lives, that even when we don't know what the future holds, we know that Jesus is with us. We know that he has a calling on our lives, that there's a purpose for our living, for our very existence, and he says that the Holy Spirit has testified to them that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await him. What courage purpose can bring to our lives when we know that we are living for our king, that even though there will be times of, of pain and of suffering and, and tasks that seem impossible to overcome in front of us, he is with us, he doesn't abandon us, he doesn't leave us, he doesn't forsake us. And how can Paul have this type of courage? Well, he says here that I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. In other words, Paul recognizes that purpose in life means that we get to live for a treasure so much greater than ourselves. We get to live for a purpose so much greater than ourselves. We get to live for the glory of another. You see, when we live in community, we live with purpose in a community of faith. It enlivens us. It awakens us from slumber. It reminds us that every single one of us in this room has a part to play, a gift to give, a way to serve in the kingdom of God. Your life matters eternally. Paul understood this, and he imparted this wisdom to the church at Ephesus, that no matter the cost, no matter the obstacle, no matter how great something might see in front of us, our lives matter. They matter, and God desires that we would live our lives to the glory of his name and to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So do we see that we have calling, that we have purpose, that a community that is fixated on the gospel has value, has meaning to run a race, to activate our faith, to not be passive in sleepiness, but to know God has a calling on our lives, and he is with us in that. And then he gets down to verse 33, and he explains that a community that is, that is going to keep itself from slumber, from drifting, is not only one that is foundationally on the truth, not only one that is transparent, not only one that has purpose, but one that is generous. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that I, by working hard in this way, must help the weak, And remember the words of the Lord Jesus. He himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus likewise tells us in the Gospels that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus always gave more than he took. And it's really a good reflective question for us to ask do we give more than we take in life? Are we modeling Jesus in this way? Do we give more than we take? You see, greed can pose a major problem for everyone in life, no matter what tax bracket you find yourself in. No one's exempt from greed. No one's exempt from covetousness. Paul reminds us that it's the gospel of God's grace. It is living in community with one another that empowers us both to sever the temptation of greed and the love of money and things, while also producing within us a passion to meet the needs of others. Notice what he says here. The hard work that he puts in has an end game. It is to make people rich in Jesus Christ. It is to help the weak. In other words, Paul reminds us here that his possessions didn't possess him. They didn't control him. And the subject he leaves these these leaders of the church with in his speech, declaring truth and talking about how we live life together and live with value and purpose is simply this, that we should care for the weak, that we should be generous with what we have for those in need. And to be a community that is centered around the gospel is to be a generous community. And he builds this into Jesus himself. And he says, we look at Jesus and we're reminded of the words of Jesus that the church should be characterized more as givers than takers. And the reason Paul has this motivation is because he knows there's one relationship in his life that he will, that he will never be able to take more than he will receive. And that is Jesus. See, Jesus has given up far more for Paul than Paul would ever uh, be asked to be taken from him. And the reason why Paul can't repay Jesus and the reason why we can't repay Jesus for all that he has done for us is that foundationally the Christian message is one of generosity, that Jesus Christ gave his life for us. It is a gift from God that he gave his life for us for the forgiveness of our sins. He gave us life in him. And so when we're touched by the gospel of God's grace, the outcome is that we're incredibly generous. We realize the need to help others. We realize that Christianity is all about a gift given to us that we can never repay. And yet to model the words of Jesus, a community that is centered around the gospel is one that gives more than it takes. Christianity is not a mandate to neglect ourselves and the needs of ourselves. But Christianity is a message that says not only think about your own needs, but think about how you can take care of the needs of others. Think of how you can see that generosity generates actually more life, not less. You see, the reason why it awakens us from slumber is because greed, greed it turns us inwardly. The love of things can cause us to drift from the needs of others. But generosity actually propels life within us because generosity is modeled in God giving his own son. That although it seemed like death was the end, it actually brought life, eternal life. In the same way, joy, peace, unshakable faith can come from when we're generous with what we have. and Trusting in the sovereign God who has given us all things. And so Paul, he he begins to wrap up this, this letter, he begins to wrap up this address to these Ephesian leaders. And he tells them, guys, look, proclaim the truth. Live out that truth. Know that truth. Embody that truth in your community. But not only that, be real with one another. Be transparent in how you live life with one another. Connect in all of life with one another. Know that you can be honest with one another because God in his grace has rescued you. And then he says, have purpose. Finish your race just like I'm finishing mine. Live for the glory of another. See to know that every single person has a calling on their life and be generous to meet the needs of others. Now, there's a lot in this text that we haven't even touched. There are so many verbs and details that he gives these pastors, these leaders, what they should do, what they should not do. It's really astounding. But, but as we kind of close and prepare ourselves for communion, I want us just to step back and think, what might Luke trying to be really communicating to us here as he writes this accurate event of what Paul is doing? What might be actually happening here? Well, I think that Paul is both showcasing his comparison to Jesus in this text and also how he is radically unlike Jesus in this text. You see, Paul, just like Jesus, is going to Jerusalem and the author who is writing this Luke, he also writes the gospel of Luke, and he says in Luke 9 that Jesus looked, he set his gaze, his his resolute gaze to Jerusalem. He knew that at the end of his life he would go to Jerusalem. And he knew what was awaiting him in Jerusalem. And Paul here, he is set to go to Jerusalem, and through the Holy Spirit, he knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. He knows that he will have opposition. He knows that that he will experience probably even being arrested. He knows that there is sacrifice waiting for him in Jerusalem. And he, like Jesus, he sets his gaze towards Jerusalem. But he's very unlike Jesus in this. That notice at the end of this passage what Paul is experiencing. In verse 36, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. You see, what Paul is experiencing here is real community. Paul is kneeling down to pray. There's embrace. There's a bunch of old men crying together, hugging one another, kissing one another displaying affection and love towards one another. And this is precisely the opposite of what Jesus Christ experienced when he went to Jerusalem. You see, when Jesus set his gaze on Jerusalem at the end of his life, he experienced the most excruciating, horrible, crushing burden of suffering, and he knew he was going to experience it. And on the night before he went to the cross, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he do? He invites his friends to come with him. Peter, James, and John come with Jesus to pray in the garden. And Jesus tells them, this is my hour of greatest need, guys. You're my friends. Pray with me. Stay awake for one hour and pray with me. What do these guys do? They fall asleep. They fall asleep. They fall into slumber, which is really a perfect picture of what happens the next day. Because when Jesus is on that cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was it wasn't just his friends? God the Father turned his face away from Jesus on the cross. And in that moment on the cross, Jesus Christ became the loneliest human being in the history of the universe. He was crushed for us. Why did he do it? He became the loneliest man in the world so that you and I could be in relationship with God. But not only in relationship with God through the forgiveness of our sins, so that we could be in relationship with one another. Jesus went to the cross and became the loneliest human being in the world so that we could experience community with God and with one another so that we could be in a community just like this, to know the truth, to grow in the truth, to be real with one another, to go deep uh, with one another in the relationship, to have meaning and purpose in this life. He became the loneliest man in history so that you and I could be friends with God and friends with each other. That is the message. That if we want to avoid falling asleep and slumbering in our faith, invest in the community that God has called us to. Trust him. Be in relationship with him and be in relationship with his people. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC Podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.